My name is Tim Bidall, and I have the great privilege of serving here at Village Bible Church as lead pastor. And we're going to ask you to open up God's Word this morning as we continue in our series uh, that we've entitled Lost. And we're learning lessons uh, from a seeking a Savior. We're in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 has been described as the gospel within the gospel. And there's a reason why that's the case, because Jesus shares to a mixed audience of people three stories about things that are lost being found. And the reason why he shares these three stories is to remind us that we are lost people. As was shared uh, by Lance in his baptismal story, we are lost. The Bible says we're blind. And the Bible even goes as far to say as we're dead and need to be brought back to life. And Jesus uses this metaphor of being lost and the great... uh, route, if you will, that God takes to finding us. And he tells three stories in doing so. First of all, the good shepherd who goes after the one of his hundred sheep in the flock, and he goes and searches after the one who was lost, bringing them back into the fold. Today's story, we'll learn about a woman who loses one of ten coins and goes to great lengths to find the coin. And then the next two weeks, we'll study the very famous story of the prodigal son, A son who wanders away in rebellion and sin, away from a loving and caring father at his home, and goes to a far-off country to sow his wild oats, and in doing so, loses much of what he would call is his life, and makes a decision to head back. And then the next week, we'll learn the story of the son who stays at home, and yet still is far from his father, and is in and of himself lost. Now, the reason for all of these stories is God is wanting to communicate one important truth, and that is that though we are lost as sinners, God loves us and has deep compassion for us in our lost estate, and he seeks and searches to find us who are lost to bring him into his family and into his kingdom. And so we are getting the very heart of God, the very heart of the gospel of how he searches diligently to find us that which was lost and to save us. This morning, we come to a story about a woman and her lost coin. And what we're going to learn, though it's a short story, only three verses long, there is great truth that we can apply from it. And it is an ongoing reminder to us that we are called as God's people, as Christ followers, to join Christ in that journey of seeking and helping to save by His grace and His mercy that which is lost. And so as we've been found, as we rejoice in our being found by God, we now turn our attention to the lost things, whether the lost sheep or the lost silver coin or the lost son or siblings in our world. And we begin to ask the Lord to help us shine His light so that they may be found. And so there's all kinds of great applications that are coming from it. But let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 8 this morning. We're going to go through verse 10, and I'll pray, and then we'll jump right into uh, the message. It says the following. Jesus goes on after sharing the story of the lost sheep. He says, Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the opportunity to engage in worship this morning. Thank you for our worship team leading us and rejoicing over how you have saved us and how you are sanctifying us and making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to hear Lance and Candace's story and Tina's story in the first service visual reminders and representations of lost people being found and the great rejoicing that we get to have in participating in the work that you're doing. Lord, it is good to be in your church this morning. And as we open up your word, Lord, we're reminded we are not the only ones doing such things. 
We aren't the only ones worshiping and praising and giving you adoration for all that you have done and all that you're doing. I think of our other four campuses, Lord, that are meeting. And I pray that you would use those times across our campuses to continue to grow Village Bible Church to be the healthy and vibrant church that you want us to be. Lord, I pray that we would have deep walks with you and that we may uh, honor you in all that is said and done. I think of other churches in our area, Lord, that uh, are ministering in partnership with us. Though not formally connected, Lord, we are connected by your Spirit. And I think of places like Christ Community and Harvest Bible Chapel, Lord, Calvary West, churches that I know love you and seek to honor and glorify you. And I pray in their gatherings today that you might do great and powerful things, that lives may be changed and a greater number of people might come to know you. Lord, we we love to hear stories of people giving you praise because you are worthy of all our praise. You're worthy of all of our service. And so, Lord, everything that is said and done today, Lord, we ask and pray that it would be done for your glory and not our own. Now, turn our attention to the scripture this morning, Lord. I pray that it would change lives, and I pray that it would impact all of us so that we may serve you and honor you in even greater ways this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, last week we talked about that a part of the human condition or being human is the very fact that we lose things. We as human beings, whether because we're neglectful or forgetful or simply just too busy for all that's going on in our day, we lose things, whether our keys or our cell phones, our wallets, our children, all manner of things we lose. And it's all right. It happens. We at times find ourselves searching Uh, for uh, a great many hours, retracing our steps, trying to find that which was lost. Now, all of the things that we lose are altogether important to us. But I'm here to say that I don't imagine you've lost anything that was worth $2 billion. And that's exactly what happened in 1911 in Paris, France, at the Louvre Museum, On one day, like any other day, as the security man was closing up the museum, he noticed something was missing. The Mona Lisa, one of the most famous pieces of art in all of the world. The Mona Lisa, uh, painted by da Vinci himself. The Mona Lisa, well-known and and, and written about in literature and well-known to even... Uh, the least of art enthusiasts was gone. And nobody knew where it had gone. For two years, from 1911 to 1913, a great search went out looking for the Mona Lisa. Nobody knew where it had gone. And there was great consternation because both the police and detectives and even normal uh, individual, ordinary people went out looking for it. There was a great reward that was put out for this priceless piece of art. The Mona Lisa was missing. Well, where could it have gone? It doesn't have legs. Someone, no doubt, must have taken it. And unknown to the world, unknown to Europe, Someone had taken it. A gentleman by the name of Vincenzo Peruzzi. What a great name for a person that's about to have a child. Vincenzo Peruzzi. He was a handyman working at the museum that day. And there's different conspiracies as to why he took the painting. Some say being an Italian and having uh, um, the artist who painted it, of course, being Italian, he felt that this great piece... uh, a priceless piece of art needed to hang in an Italian museum, not a French one. Others say that it was because he wanted to use it as a ransom to make a fortune. Nobody really knows. He never declared the reason why he took it. But here's the amazing thing. One of the most priceless pieces of art was literally taken off the wall of the museum put under his arm with a cloth over it, and he walked out the front door. It's not high-level espionage. It's not high-level thievery. He just walked out with it. 
And for two years, the Mona Lisa did not sit in a museum, but in a broom closet. And only when he felt like he could get a reward after it had climbed now up to a million dollars did he go to the authorities and present it that he had found what everyone was looking for. The problem was when he returned the piece of art, his story would change with each of the investigations that came along. As a result, Peruzzi was charged and convicted for one of the uh, largest thefts from a monetary value in all of the world. But he would find grace from the juror because he would only serve seven months in jail, never telling anybody why he actually stole it. And yet, when there celebrations that took place when the Mona Lisa made its way back to the Louvre, in fact, the amazing thing is while the Mona Lisa was known to be an awesome piece of art, it wasn't until after it had been refound that it really came to have the notoriety that it does today. So now, since 1913, the Mona Lisa has securely found its place in the Louvre with a recognition that it was once lost and it took a great deal of time and energy to find it once again. Jesus tells a story like that. Now, it's not the Mona Lisa. It's not this priceless work of art. In fact, it's one of 10 coins. And the coins really aren't all that valuable. It was worth that coin was worth about a day's wage. But the idea here is what Jesus is going to say is that coin was invaluable to its owner. And there was significance to it. And Jesus in three short verses is going to remind us of some incredible truths about being lost and found. Three truths, and let's look at the first one this morning. The first truth that this text tells us about is that lost people are important to God. And by proxy, because they're important to God, they should be important to us. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to a mixed group of people. In verse 1, we are told he's talking with tax collectors and sinners. They are the deplorables of their day. They are the ones that nobody wants to hang out with. They are the ones with a past. They are the ones who have been chided by society, by the religious society around them, that they are good for nothing. These individuals have found a place in the ministry of Jesus. They love Jesus' teaching because it brings grace and mercy and compassion. But in that group, in that setting, are also the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. The deplorables know who these men are because these are the men that keep them from worshiping in the temple. These are the men who tell them that they're sinners. And Jesus has now started hanging around the deplorables. He is eating with them. He's engaged in ongoing life with them. He's created relational space for them in his life. And, and while they love it, the religious establishment hates it. And they're grumbling about who this rabbi Jesus is hanging out with. This guy who says he's God, this guy who says speaks on God's behalf, is hanging around people that the Pharisees and scribes think that God wants nothing to do with. And so Jesus says, listen, the reason why I'm hanging out with tax collectors and sinners is because they're lost. And let me share with you three stories as to why lost things are important to God. And he shares the first, the story of the lost sheep. One of a hundred, it wanders away. The shepherd goes, finds it, puts it on his shoulders, carries it back to the fold, and returns it to a place of safekeeping. Now he pivots to a story of a woman. Now right away, before we even get into her losing something, the very mention of a woman would cause the Pharisees to grumble. Now they're already grumbling because God, I'm sorry, Jesus told them to put themselves into a shepherd's life, a shepherd's shoes or sandals. And shepherds were hated by the Pharisees. They were viewed as deplorable people. 
sinful, uh, ugly people, people that were smelly and below the white-collar nature of who they are. Now, to double down, Jesus says that they are to put themselves in the shoes of a woman. And as we know in first century culture, women were viewed as second-class citizens. They weren't allowed to speak. They weren't allowed to be a part of things. And so the Pharisees have all the more to grumble about. You want us to be a shepherd? You want us to be women? This makes no sense. And yet it makes all the sense in the world. What Jesus is doing is he's reordering the social structure and framework of first century Palestine. And what he's articulating is that no matter who you are, because you are a creature of God's, you are a creation of God's, because you bear the image of God, you are loved by God. And we need to recognize this morning, maybe we don't deal with the same cultural things. Shepherds are held in high regard in our midst today. I would hope that women are held in high regard, not only in this place, but in our country. And we've come a long way with regards to that. But what Jesus is trying to articulate in using some of these examples is to remind us that if we think we're going to gain anything from God, if we think we're going to learn from God, all the while uh, sticking our, or looking down our noses, at other people with a haughty, prideful, arrogant spirit, we should expect nothing from God. And so when we hear this message and we hear that lost people uh, matter to God, are important to God, before we start saying, well, it depends on what they've done or haven't done, let us all be reminded that we are to put ourselves in their shoes. We are that which is lost. We've all been lost. We are all sheep without shepherd. We are all coins in a dark and dirty place. So this woman that Jesus speaks about has lost a coin. Now we are told that she had 10 coins. Now that helps us to understand some of what's going on. In the culture, it was common for women to have a headdress that was a gold bracelet of sorts that went about their head that had these 10 coins to them. Now, when Jesus uses the phrase coins, he's, usually, he's literally using the term drachma. A drachma was a coin in Jewish days. It was a coin that was about the size of our nickel. It wasn't as heavy as a nickel. They didn't put that much weight into their coins. So it, it, it was probably the size of a nickel, but the weight of like a, a small seashell, not much weight to it. But they would somehow put those coins into this headdress that a woman would wear. Now, there's great significance to these headdresses that woman, the women of their time wore. Let's understand a couple of them. Number one, it was a symbol. It was a symbol. These women that had these headdresses all received it culturally at the same time. It was given to them on their wedding day by their father. And so their father would give them this uh, bracelet of sorts that would go around their, their heads and it would adorn their wedding day and it would speak of the father's blessing that the daughter had been a good daughter, a faithful daughter, an honorable daughter, up to the day of being given over to her husband. And so the father would say, this is my gift to you, young man, my daughter, who has done everything I've asked of her. She has my blessing, and I'm going to give to this marriage this dowry. And so the 10 coins served as a wedding band of sorts, but it also served as a dowry that was given on the day of the marriage. So now she's lost it. Women, you can recognize the loss of an engagement ring, the loss of a, a wedding ring. There's significance to it. And what we're going to recognize is, is there are things in our lives that carry way more significance than they do earthly value. 
There are things in our lives, whether fire was uh, threatening to consume them or if we were to lose them, that have way more value than what the world would put on it. Whether it's an heirloom, whether it's a picture, whether it's some correspondence that we have, uh, something that reminds us of a certain person or event in our life that carries great significance and because of it to us great value. That is the symbolism there. It was a day's wage. It wasn't much that she had lost. She had nine other coins. But because of what it symbolized, it held great honor in this woman's life and now she can't find one of those coins. It was a symbol. Number two, it was for her security. So the father would give this dowry and she would wear it all the days of her life and the only reason why she was to ever use those ten coins wasn't to go buy the new iPhone It wasn't to go and buy the new outfit at the uh, Palestinian mall. It wasn't to buy groceries. But the only time she was to use that money was in the case of her husband dying. And if her husband was to die, she would find herself in a place of great peril. And so her job was to use that money to close up her and her husband's business, whatever it was, whatever they had, and to use that money to get herself back to her father's home or to a brother's home or to an uncle's home where she would be cared for and, and, and uh, ministered to until she got remarried or until she was to pass away. And so this money, these 10 coins, were to serve as an insurance policy of security for this woman. And she's lost one. She's lost one of the ten. But there's another significant reason why she's so concerned about losing this. Because she could explain away that the symbol, that she had lost a part of this symbol, she could explain away that she now is nine-tenths of the money her father gave her for the chance that calamity might befall her and she may need it. But the greater significance is, is what people thought when one was missing. You see, a coin was taken out of the headdress of a married woman if she had been found to be unfaithful. And so the chief leaders of the community would bring her in the town square and they would take one of those coins away from her, in essence saying she has not lived up to what her father had said she would and what her husband said of her. And because of that, it was the scarlet letter that would say that she was a woman who had been unfaithful. And it would tear the world that her reputation is one that has got blemishes to it. And so she now knows and recognizes that because of this lost coin, there's great significance to her ongoing life and existence. And so her job, her focus, her intention, her priority each and every moment is to find that which is lost and put it back in its proper place. This is the story that Jesus is sharing. Now, he shares it, and it's in some ways, here we go again, Jesus. This is the same story that you shared with the lost sheep. But notice the differences. The lost sheep is lost because it's wandered away. It's used its four feet to scamper away from the shepherd. A coin has no feet. A coin can't wander away. Notice in the story of the lost sheep, it wanders far away. The shepherd has to go and search after it. It goes far from the flock of the shepherd. Whereas we learn in the text that the coin is in the house. It isn't far at all. And so uh, by reading this text, if we read too quickly, we say Jesus repeats himself three times. The lost sheep, the lost silver, the lost son. 
But if you spend a little time in the text and you look at the differences and you ask interpretive questions, you begin to see, no, what Jesus is doing is he's working off a theme, that which is lost needs to be found. But there's so much more there. And I want you to see what happens. Jesus does this kind of play on words with regards to his stories that speaks to different people. Remember, he's talking to two groups of people, the tax collectors and sinners, those who have wandered far from God, and everybody knew it, including themselves. But he's also speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes who are close to God, who are in the house of God, who think they're not lost and are angry with those who have wandered away. So let's look at what's going on. It is easy for us when we wander away from God to know we are lost. But has it ever dawned on you that you could be lost and be in God's house close to God? That's what the Pharisees were. Talk about people that were as close to God as anybody from an outward appearance. They did all the right things, all the right ways, at all the right times. They had following God down to a science. And they demanded everybody do it their way. But, God, but Jesus says they're as lost as anybody. They're the coin in the house of God, which is close to its master, but it's lost. They're the older brother of the prodigal son's story who never leaves, who never wanders away, who points at the sin of the younger brother and yet is as far off and in many ways even farther from their father than the wandering one. And so this morning, it is a word to each of us, us who have wandered away from God and those who seemingly are doing our duty but have never entered into a relationship with God. Though you're in the house of God, you are far from him and you are lost. Jesus tells these stories and with mastery, he's picking off each and every one of us by applying different elements of the story to our lives. So, the coin's lost. What does the woman do? Well, we see that the woman goes on a search and from that truth, we learn that God's search for lost people is intense. Now, nowhere in the story of the lost sheep do we hear about the search. All it says about the shepherd is that it goes after the sheep and it searches until it finds him, which speaks of persistence and endurance and of great love. But here in our text, we're given three phrases that help us to understand the search. Number one, she lights a lamp. Number two, she sweeps the house. And number three, she searches diligently. Now, let's stop there and recognize a couple things. First of all, she lights a lamp. Now, it doesn't take much deduction for us to answer the question as to why she lights the lamp. So, let me ask you this question, because I know you are reasonably uh, reasonable people, and you, I was going to say reasonably smart people, but reasonable people and smart people, not reasonably smart, why do we turn on a light? Help me out. Someone answer it for me. It's to see because it's dark. So the reason why she lights a lamp is because her house is dark. Commentaries tell us and archaeological uh, finds tell us that the first century homes in Palestine were not homes like ours with lots of windows, which would allow a lot of sunlight in. While there was much sunlight in Palestine, we need to recognize that with a window comes all the opportunities of an opening in your home, not just for sunlight to come in, but all of their elements to come in. They who experience great sandstorms and the winds and the cold. And so windows didn't have houses. So it could have been during the day or it could have been at evening. She lights the lamp because where she's at is a dark place. 
Then it says she sweeps the house. She takes a broom and she begins to sweep the house. Why do we sweep houses? Help me out. Because they're dirty. All right? None of your houses are dirty. Right? No, we vacuum, we sweep because there's dust, there's dirt. But it's even more than that because the issue that she had, don't, don't have in your mind carpeting or, or tile or hardwood. But what it was, was it was a, a cobblestone, if you will, like a cobblestone patio that have all these crevices, crevices these nooks and crannies <clears throat> where things could get lost. And so she's out and she's sweeping in the house with, with one hand, with the other hand holding a lantern so that she can search diligently to find it. Now remember, it's not that very big. It's the size of a nickel, the weight of a seashell. It's not altogether that big. It would be easy for it to fall into a place where it would be lost. And she is about searching for it. Now why is she diligently searching? Because her whole identity, all of her security, and her place in the community is all held in that coin which is lost. And so she is going to go about doing all that she can to find it. Now, it seems like the search goes on for a while because if it was for five minutes, then the women of the community wouldn't have known that when she finds it, that she was looking for it. So she has spoken to the women of the community. It says that when she does find it, she gathers her girlfriends, literally in the text, it is girlfriends, to rejoice with her. Now, why would she tell girls about her lost coin and nobody else? Because of the significance that it had. And, and just let's just be honest, guys wouldn't have any idea of what it's like to lose a coin. We have no coins. We've got, uh, don't laugh. Okay? We don't understand what it would be like to lose that. We can't put ourselves in the woman's shoes in that way. But no doubt other women have lost coins from time to time. And so they're aware of it as she's searching for it. So this diligent search goes on for some time. And then we are told in the text, look there. She finds it. She finds it. Now, it doesn't say she finds it somewhere outside of the county. It doesn't say she finds it at her parents' house. She finds it in the home where she has shared light to, uh, to shed light on it to, to illuminate, where she has swept the floor. She has done her search. The coin is found in the house. And then she goes and she rejoices. And there's great celebrating that that which was lost is now found. Now, be really, really careful when we deal with parables. One of the things that I'll write down in my notebook is don't read too much into the text. Don't speculate too much. And there's commentaries that do a great job and those sermons are outstanding because they sound so fanciful and so wonderful. Don't read too much into stories that Jesus tells. One commentator takes the whole Trinity and puts the Trinity into this story, okay? And he says that the light is the Holy Spirit. The broom that which she sweeps with is the Mosaic law, okay? It gets downright crazy in some of the things that are said. And so I write down, don't read too far into this, and yet I am struck without desiring to go outside of what God is telling, the lost need to be found, that I see within what he has described to me, and I'll leave it at this, to me, is a perfect picture of what we see of Jesus Christ. So let me explain to you what it is, and you can take it and say, wow, Tim's being too fanciful, he's reading into it, that's fine, okay? But here's what I see. A woman lights the, the house, she sweeps the floor, she diligently searches until she finds the coin. I've written down a statement for you. And I say, it's Jesus, this is a picture a wonderful picture for us that Jesus entered a dark and dirty place. He entered this dark and dirty place. Now, let's just keep going with the sentence. Diligently seeking what? Diligently seeking us until he discovered us who were lost. 
Now, the Bible helps us with this. So I'm not out, uh, out in left field with regards to this. We are told that Jesus came to this world and he put on flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We beheld the glory, the glory of the one and only, the Gospel of John verse, chapter 1, verse 14 tells us. And Jesus, when he entered this world as the king of the universe, the son of the living God, as he put on flesh, the world he entered into was not like the world where he came from. Heaven was full of light. Heaven was full of purity and holiness. Heaven was a place where Jesus, the son of God, was worshipped and adored by myriads upon myriads of angels 24-7, 365 days a year, it was a glorious place. But Jesus comes to earth for one sole purpose, to seek and to save that which was lost. In order to find us, to seek after us and find us, Jesus had to enter a world very different than his heaven, which was filled with sin, and the Bible says that the sin of the world has caused man to enter into a place of darkness. In fact, Peter puts it this way, that we should praise Jesus, the excellencies of Jesus, who's called us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous or wonderful light. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We are told all the time, over two dozen times in the, both the Old Testament and New Testament, that as unbelievers, we live in darkness. Paul says in the book of Ephesians, we are children of darkness. We live in a dark world. Our sins keep us from seeing the light of truth, the light of Christ. And it is why Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I shine my light so that people in darkness might find their way back to God. Jesus entered a dark place. Notice he entered a dirty place. Just as the woman had to sweep the floor because as the coin had fallen to the ground, it had fallen into a dusty, dirty place. Again, we've got to get our clean living room floors out of the mix, our clean kitchen floors out of our mind. What it was, was this was dirt ground, dusty ground, muddy ground, depending on the weather of the day. They may have put some nice carpets down to try to take care of it, but it was dirty. You did not eat on the floor. We can eat on the floor. We could do that. We could pull that off. But you couldn't do that in first century time. And it's a picture for me, reminder of what Jesus entered into. Our sin doesn't make us clean. Our sin is a stain upon our lives. It dirties us. We are told that our sin uh, makes is crimson on what should be white, wool. We are told that we are stained in the New Testament over and over again, stained by our corruption from the world. And yet Jesus enters this dark and dirty place. He shines his light. He lives a life of perfection. He doesn't fall into this dark world and this dirty world and fall under its guise. He remains pure in midst of it. And he goes about seeking, diligently seeking you and I. This last week in small groups, if you were a part of it, one of the questions was, tell your story of how God went about diligently seeking you. It was so great in some of the groups that I heard from that articulated stories, different stories of how God met them. You've heard today two stories on how God met the Olsons. And it's different than your story. That's what's great about a testimony. It's true to you. And God has a way of changing lives, of, of, of shining his light and finding that which was lost and bringing us back into the folds. He diligently seeks until he finds. He finds you. He looks and he finds with utter perfection. 
a picture of Jesus, that the search for you is intense. Now we'll talk more about that search and and all of that as we continue in the story of the prodigal son and the prodigal sibling. But this is the gospel. Jesus enters a dark and dirty place, diligently seeking the lost until he discovers them. Now, we go back to the woman. She's found her coin. Now, in the story of the shepherd, he rejoices privately. There's no private rejoicing. She must have found it and ran to her girlfriends and said, the coin that I had lost, I have found. Rejoice with me. Be excited for me. And there's a reason why they would have been excited. Not for a lost drachma, but something of greater value. Now, here's the thing. If you remember, the shepherd rejoices with his neighbors who are probably other uh, other shepherds. Likewise, the woman rejoices with people who would understand the significance of losing that coin, other women. And so what we get is we get a picture of the celebration, the celebration of what God has going on when lost souls are found. Notice point number three. There's a celebration over finding the lost, which is inspiring. And to understand it, we need to look at this celebration both from a human perspective and then likewise a heavenly perspective. Now, just because I've filled in all your blanks, don't close your Bible, okay? Because I'm going to have you write something very important down in a moment. From a human perspective, the reason why the women are so excited about what has been found, why they celebrate and rejoice, is because they recognize as long as that coin is missing, it has no purpose. Think of it this way. If you were to go today after service, you're going to go to the grocery store, you're going to go out to eat, and you eat or you pick up the food that you're going to and you're at the checkout aisle and when the waitress or the grocery store clerk says, all right, that'll be $32.95, you say, I had a $50 bill in my wallet, but it's not here. Can we just, I know you're going to trust me, I have a $50 bill, I don't know where it's at right now, but can I use that $50 to pay for it? No, the person would say, no, without a tangible $50 in my hands, you're either going to wash dishes or you're going to return the groceries, right? We can't, we can't uh, use lost money. Likewise, the lost coin has uh, no purpose for existence unless it is in the hand of the owner who's able to use it for a transaction. Listen to me very, very carefully. Lost people have no purpose without their creator. And so maybe you're lost today and you're wondering, why can't I find the meaning of life? Why, can't I ser- why am I not searching after the significance of living life? The reason why is God created you for a purpose. You were created for a purpose that God gave you. And as long as you live your life apart from God, you are not living the created purpose of your existence. Now, is it the only purpose? No. God has given by his grace the ability to love and to live and to work and to do all of these things. But your number one purpose in life was to be involved in a relationship with the Almighty. And as long as you're lost, you are neglecting the greatest purpose of why God created you so that you might worship and serve him and receive the immense joy, peace, and contentment that comes from a life fully devoted to their creator. And so you are that lost coin who has no purpose in life because the very use that you were created for, the very purpose you were created for, You can't in your lost estate. And that's the great redemptive thing that God does. God doesn't just leave us there. He comes and searches after us because he recognizes and knows that though we are lost, he loves us so much that he wants to enter us into a relationship with his son. Now, 
Jesus then put, brings the last verse up. Likewise, he did it with the lost sheep. And he begins to turn the attention from the home to heaven. And he says, likewise, there is much rejoicing amongst the angels. Now, he said last time just in heaven. Now, he says angels when that which is lost is found and repents, comes to Christ. What do the angels have to do with it? Why does Jesus bring up the angels? Well, number one, there's a celebration in heaven because God is at work. But the angels know something that we forget about. Remember, before the foundations of the world, the angels worshiped and adored Jesus and the triune God in community in the heavenly realms for all of eternity past. We don't know how long ago God created angels, but it was long before God created human beings. And while they're worshiping and adoring, it's happening in perfection. This awesome, uh, ongoing celebration of who God is is taking place. That is until in the heart of one of the chief cherubs, Lucifer, Lucifer conjures up this idea from himself, I am better than God. Now, Lucifer was one of the head angels, one of the most powerful and beautiful of all angels. God says that of Lucifer. But pride and arrogance wells up in Lucifer's heart. And he is so beautiful and he is so regal and so powerful that a third of the myriads of myriads of angels believe in their heart that Lucifer's got God. That he can take God. That's how, so, so when you hear that, that the devil is, is just this patsy, listen, angels were looking at God and they were looking at Lucifer and a third of the angels said, you know what, we think Lucifer could take God. It's pretty amazing. It's a pretty awesome thought. And in that moment, in a place of perfection, God in an instant dismantles the rebellion and he throws the angels out of heaven. The Bible says some angels were thrown into gloomy dungeons in chains in hell, while others we know, as the devil is, is still free within parameters to prowl around this world like a lion seeking who he may devour. And we see that in New Testament times because Jesus is exercising free demons from people, right? Now these angels, the angels that he's speaking of are the two-thirds of the elect angels, the, the uh, holy angels that are now in heaven watching what God is doing with human beings. Now remember, put yourself in the heavenly perspective. The angels have seen God create after this judgment of a third of the angels to consign them to earth or to hell. God now does a new thing. He creates men and women who are made a little lower than the angels. We're, we're, we're less in the superstructure, if you will, of, of angels. We don't stand a chance against angels. But the difference is God has created us in his image and likeness. Now, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and Adam and Eve are doing what the angels did for all of eternity past, worshiping and glorifying God. That is until they are tempted to believe they are like God, and for that matter, better than God. They get to decide what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it. And the angels say, oh boy, we've seen this before. He's going to cast them into hell. He's going to judge them. His wrath and his, in, his indignation is going to happen again. Just like Lucifer and our buddies who rebelled against God, so it will be for these lesser creatures of men and women. Write this down. When angels rebelled against God, when angels rebelled against God, God pursued them to punish them. When angels rebelled against God, God pursued them to punish them. 
when humans rebelled, God pursued us to pardon us. Do you get it? Oh, how great, the writer of Hebrews says, so great our salvation. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that angels look into redemption intently. Why? Because they're trying to figure out what is it about men and women that make men and women so special to God that instead of destroying them, he delivers them. And we forget how lost we were. We forget how how lost we were in our dark and dirty places and how God has lifted us up into the heavenly realms and gifted us with every blessing under heaven. Though we were lost, now we're found. It's no wonder why John Newton writes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see because I, like the demons of the world, sinned and rebelled against God and what did God do to deliver me, to pardon me? He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live and be the perfect lamb that would be sacrificed for my sins. And so when we recognize, though we have little value in the world's economics, in the, uh, the cosmic economics of the world, God has put a price tag on us. And he has said we are worth the price. He has said we are significant. And he has said I will diligently search until I find you who are lost. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And we have been reminded of some incredible truths this morning. Not truths from a eloquent preacher, but truths from your word. And so, Lord, I pray that those truths would dig deep into who we are, that we would rejoice and be glad, that we would, when we see people who announce their salvation in a, in a baptismal tank, would rejoice and be glad that which is lost has been found, that we would rejoice with other believers when we have the opportunity to go and to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we know, Lord, that in our world, in our sphere of influence, there are lost coins all over the place. Insignificant from a world standard, but invaluable to the Creator God. And so, Lord, impress upon us as we celebrate our own salvation to go and to partner as ambassadors of yours to seek and by your grace, mercy, and through your gospel, save that which is lost. It's that amazing grace that has touched all who have been saved. And it's that amazing grace that will lead many, many more home. We love you and give you the praise for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.